It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Welcome to this podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the editor of the magazine. This spring I was very fortunate to meet up with woodsman Vincent Thurkettle to discuss all things trees, woods and wood fires. This particular podcast we decided to chat about the state of the UK's woods and we were sitting out on a beautiful April morning with birdsong as a backdrop. So I hope you enjoy it. So yeah, you were saying how... um, yeah, how how woods have changed over your yeah. Life. I think as as a sort of as a tenant, a maxim for looking after Britain's woodlands. I think as a society, we must care for them, and not necessarily put on the kid gloves. I've seen a number of woodlands through my life um, declining because people are so frightened to do anything, or they're non-stop coppicing, and the coppice is dying back because deer are eating all the regrowth. What have you seen? I think he's just through there. Here, that, okay. that little bird yep, there. Yep, sorry. That's the firecrest. He'll, okay. he'll sing from there. And it's, it's got, that's it's him, definitely. up one, yeah. Yeah, that's and him. again. Yeah, they're coming no, to do, do a survey here of firecrests now. Now they believe me. <laughs> <laughs> so putting a value yeah. on woods is... Yeah, is no, it was, it was just this notion that... Um, it was this old chap who um, started me on this line of thinking and what he was saying was... He was trying to make his woodlands valuable, and I talked to him about why, because he was actually very rich. And he said, God, it's nothing to do with me. He said, it's my heirs. I don't trust my heirs. He said, if I make my woodlands intrinsically valuable, they will care for them and not try and turn them into potato fields or something. Because, you know, there are so many ways you can destroy a woodland. It is wrong to talk about them now, but it's not, you know, if someone is minded to get rid of a woodland, it's not that difficult. The law notwithstanding, it's not. So the people who are pro-woodland and the people who are anti-woodland need to value them, and that will safeguard them. I think a high oil price helps. Yes, Um, yes, and we don't have that at the moment. No, at the moment we don't, but... You know, the boom in wood-burning stoves and, f- and firewood sales Ooh. when oil was over $100 a barrel. I guess it will go back. <clears throat> fracking or no fracking, the price will go back. And then woodlands which were too remote or too difficult, which were being thinned and managed and cared for for firewood, I guess that stopped just now. Yes, but it will go good. back. So, I mean, we're surrounded here by a bit of a tangle of a small beach and an understory of hazel and some ash around the place. Um, this would have once been, because they're old coppices. Yeah. Um, how, how could you turn, how could you make that 
I mean, it's not been grubbed up because it's too inaccessible yes. for something else. So yeah. it sort of survives by being marginal land. But yeah. how could you make it? Could it be valuable again? I believe so, yeah. I think, as you say, perhaps um, a fortunate thing in history is this is just too difficult. So even at the times when it wasn't valued by the owners, they left it alone. And I think here, you've so few deer that you've it's cheaper to work this because you don't have to bring in a mass of protection. You could recoppice. I think the thing light is the important thing. Half of the art of forestry is managing light levels okay. for the ground right. flora, for the shrub layer, and for the trees themselves. You mean like creating glades and felling? For, well, felling do they need it or not? Mm. You know, it's it's all delightfully confusing because the trees are broadly grouped into shade tolerant, moderate shade bearers, and light demanders. But then you get species which change through time. Young sycamore and young ash can tolerate heavy shade but they can't after they're sort of 10, 15 years old. Yeah, okay. So their, their physiology changes that, yeah, they'll tolerate shade, they're designed. So really, you've a carpet of seedlings, ash, sycamore, whatever, they're waiting for a tree to fall or a, a skylight to appear so they can go for it. And if ah. one doesn't appear, if the light levels stay low, they pretty much die out. That's very interesting. That explains the forestry we can see ahead of us. Yeah. As I, when we'll try and walk through it later, but there are long spindly ash trees in there yes. which come down in every gale they're the things that <laughs> they could firewood aren't they <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, absolutely but they also that's the reason they've obviously lain yes. there and one yeah. or two have got lucky and yeah. got out of there but it's it's like f foxglove as a plant is a bit similar but stays in the seed state in that mm. fox i always understood foxgloves it could shed its seeds and the seeds could sit for 40 years i've now heard people whose opinion i trust so it's more like 80 years. So the seed will lay dormant, mm. and then when the light, warmth, moisture conditions are right, the seed will grow. Now, I think the ash, the seed always grows, and even that's complicated because it will grow immediately or it has to wait 18 months. So clever old nature, for every casting of seed, is giving those little trees two different chances, two points in time to yeah. get going. So when there is this flush of little seedlings, yeah, if there is no opportunity to grow, they just don't. And if there is, as you say, they'll bolt. They don't, I suppose, once they've been drawn up through a, a huge canopy like the conifers over there, they then do need a bit of space. And trees like that in forestry are called a whip for the simple reason that they flail about a lot. I think that's exactly And if happens. they flail about, it snaps off all the side branches and they never develop a crown. They, they, they do seem to be just straight-up poles, and when they come down, they're yeah. extremely long, but there's nothing to them, even, yeah. even barely a crown on the top. It's fascinating, because this forestry is a totally different kettle of fish. Yeah. It's um, been planted in the 50s, I think, as far as I can gather, talking to local people, and it's not been harvested when it's all thinned or anything it's right. just been left so someone has thought well oh, i'll take advantage of this hillside okay. it's impossible to remove it but it's, it's a shame because the larch particularly you know they should have well the larch and the douglas they're highly valued species yeah. they should have as you say they should have been able to do something with it and the, the other thing I, i'm really pleased <coughs> about is that Society for quite a while had a huge down on conifers, and that's so silly. It was to do with the economics of taxation. 
that people were encouraged to plant up heathland and moorland, mm. you know, and the, and the rolling blanket of Sitka, which was a cause celebre 20, 30 years ago, that made people anti-conifer, and that's so silly because conifers have their place, and well-thinned conifers, the light comes through, yes, and yeah. you get a field layer, and there are species like firecrest, goldcrest, and others which really adore that sort. Of, mm. I mean, our crossbills are designed for that sort of woodland, um, and the red squirrels were. So, but if you leave it in thicket like that, as you say, they were planted unnaturally evenly all their competitors were killed yes and then they grow as the dark satanic sort of block <laughs> and <laughs> really are. the goshawks we've got long-tailed tits, long -tailed tits now. Arriving, I love yeah. them. they're yeah. possibly my favorite birds i this... mean their nests are so beautiful yeah wonderful they're kind of like constructed from spider's webs yeah and, and feathers, feathers lined yeah. with down yeah incredibly I found comfortable it, i've yeah. got a christmas tree plantation and there are long-tailed tits nesting in my christmas trees but something has opened them. Last year, I found the top of the nest had been opened. I oh, really And am. I'm wondering, Jay Magpie, I didn't see what did it. Yeah. I mean, it could be Sparrowhawk. I don't know what opens long-tailed tit's nest and goes in from the top. Squirrel, maybe. Does that do it? Because teeth. And, um, yeah, it could do. I'd, but anyway, I was... I'd rather like a bed made of, of long-tailed <laughs> sort of nest. Yeah. Probably some, no, wealth, some wealthy sultan somewhere will have one constructed are, from there. My, my father sent me a clip the other day of um, it, somebody had filmed long-tailed tits roosting in a holly bush. And it was, I mean, it was adorable. It was like watching puppies. They were all trying to get in the middle because the middle is obviously warmer. Nice and warm, yeah. But I think roosting, just on that, it's fascinating. When I was a boy, I was so interested in birds. I, I lived in South Wales and my friend Maurig and I and another chap, um, Charles Marsh used to go bird watching every free moment but I became fascinated with where they roost because I all my books told me everything about the daytime what they mm. looked like how they where they nested how they fed what they did and all of a sudden for the average 12 hours of dark whatever I didn't have a clue yeah and now we learn about swifts how they roost and I On think the, the roost yeah. Yeah, yeah I think sorry yeah I think the the roosting of birds is fascinating. Well, that's interesting what you were saying last night about Lelandii, because presumably they create yeah. very perfect. And this is the, we were talking about sort of unloved trees, and the first thing that many homeowners do is cut down the Lelandii. Yeah, edge. again, it's actually it's just like the plantation forestry we're looking at across from us here. A Lelandii hedge overdone shades out the neighbours. Everybody hated it, and the tree gets a really bad name. But a single Leylandii is like a block of flats for birds. You know, the, the, the blackbirds, thrushes, chaffinch love it. Um, goldfinch, goldfish sites, love sites, it. Nest sites, nest sites well. and yeah. roosting, sorry, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it was a wise old forester told me that once. I was being all modern and following the trend of hating Leylandii. <laughs> and he said, don't be yeah. so stupid. Well, I've I've changed my mind on them because yeah, I've always sort of no, had them out whenever I've seen them and um, well, enjoyed the burning. The occasional them. single one, their firewood is surprisingly good. <laughs> right, <laughs> okay. It spits, well, but it's yeah. fine. No, I've burnt plenty, but um, there isn't an awful lot for birds to. to mm. We're talking roosting again now, really. Ivy, you know, there's a lot of ivy in the woodland up from us here, and that's fine. They can tuck in that. That's nectar and food and, mm. and shelter. But holly, Scots pine, yew—there aren't that many of them, and they so don't the native that conifers much, aren't they? that great. No, Whereas... they're not. They're not offering an awful lot. And I think a judicious addition 
of other conifers is absolutely fine. I know when I worked for the Forestry Commission, um, we did a big survey of what sort of woodlands people like, and we expected it to come out broadleaf, but it wasn't. It was mixed woodland. But it was like it was something astonishing. Like seventy percent of people liked mixed woodland, and it wasn't the purists all wanted everything to be broadleaf, but the population preferred mixed, which is good and sensible, I think. You were saying about how some forestry practices in the past might have filled up hollow trees yeah. with, with what was it? Well, that's right, concrete. When, when I was at Dartington, we were taught sort of, um, we were taught things like if you find a hollow tree, you fill it with concrete to make it stable and stop the rot and chisel. And we used to paint tarry stuff over every wound. So concrete and tar and every wound. And you know, we've moved on so much from that. And even, even the sort of stuff which fascinates me at the moment is the lessons from the 87 Gale were that nice, strong, healthy trees blew over and trees that had been dying back for 100 years and were hollow and their branches were part dead, part live, they stood. And there were some great thinkers in, in wildlife conservation and woodland management who were beginning to question whether this was part of nature's plan for the tree, something like an oak. It grows up and straight and strong for 150, 180 years, something like that, and then it dies back and becomes hollow and then lives for the next 400 years. And these people were pointing out that bamboo, cow parsley, hogweed, an awful lot of stems that nature has um, evolved are hollow. Our scaffold poles are hollow. It's a very strong way of um, making a tube. So these trees and are becoming aspects, hollow. Efficient yeah. in terms of material. With yeah. weight, that's yeah. right. They're, they're much... They've not got the branches but birds and leaves. Bones, uh, bird's bones are... are yeah, yes, they're like, hollow. Yeah, that's right. And incredibly strong. They're dinosaurs, so it's been going for a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, these people were thinking, okay, so hollow trees, it's not... They're not necessarily dangerous. In fact, that gale began to show us that hollow trees were safer sometimes, not always. And then some of the more lateral thinkers were beginning to wonder if there was an advantage to the trees and were thinking things like a hollow tree attracts bats, birds, rodents, and those are going to bring in nitrogen in, in the form of their droppings. And these, I know that there was one chap, forgotten his name now, but he was putting forward the theory that this was part of the tree's evolution, that it grew, then it became attractive to wildlife, and then it fertilised itself. That's which I think is brilliant. Yeah. It's a lot, rather like flowers attracting bees for their own yes. sort of further yeah. their seeds. This is just bringing nutrients. Yeah, in. yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, I've not heard that before, but it sort of makes sense. Really. It does. And, and um, even if it's sort of not strictly planned, or it, well, nothing is strictly planned, but it's yeah. it's sort of it's getting a benefit mm. from, from their being... I think I, w I, would, I would have it on the table as a bona fide idea. Whether it's yeah. true or not, I've no idea, but it's a bona fide idea, I think. Worth, worth looking into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're very lucky to get such a beautiful backdrop of birdsong for that recording. And I hope you enjoyed it. This has been a podcast for BBC Countryfile magazine. Thank you for listening. <laughs>